the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad you've come along today. We have a great show, somebody I have heard for a while, I've listened to, I've read, and I'm thankful for the opportunity I get to a chance to engage his new book. But you're going to have to wait just a second to find out about that because we're, I need to tell you about the sponsors of this podcast. Bill Roberts is a financial planner who comes at this discipline from a Christian perspective, and he's particularly gifted at helping people who are serving in ministry as they have to calculate funny things like housing allowances and that type of thing. But he does this with the aim of helping people plan well for their retirement. So you can check out information about Bill at WilliamHRoberts.com, and you can find a link to him in my show notes. Also, we are brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where I work and serve as the academic dean and professor of theology and preaching. I'm so thankful that this school is riding high at this point in the where, where our country is and what's happening even higher institution and, and higher education in our world. Altogether, right now, we have one of the highest enrollments in our history, and we have students who are entering into our bachelor's, master's, and doctoral programs. We would love for you to think about Wesley Biblical Seminary as we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. Check us out at wbs.edu. And finally, I just want to make sure people know about a resource I have available. It is Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a 45-minute teaching session that I have in an eight-page document for preachers and teachers to help them get deeper into Scripture with the aim of thinking how they communicate what they've learned better. So I'd love for you to check that out. I'll give that to you for free if you sign up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. All right. I am glad to welcome into the podcast today, Glenn Scribner, who is the director of Speak Life. Glenn, I am a fan of yours. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now, Glenn, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from. Uh, I think that will get people acclimated with you and understanding, like, before we get into your new book, which I'm really excited to talk about. Well, you would say acclimated. I would say climatized because I, I'm on this side of the Atlantic and uh, you, you have to get acclimated to me saying climatized, I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm from uh, Australia originally and I've been living for half my life in the UK now. I'm married to Emma. We've got Ruby and JJ are our two children. I'm an Anglican minister in the Church of England, but my day job is to work as an evangelist. And so I direct the ministry Speak Life and we go out and preach the gospel and we create resources that help people to understand the gospel and we train other people to do the same. So that's Speak Life. Now, how did you get to the UK? Was it through for education purposes or? Yeah, my dad got a job. I was uh, not yet 15 years old. And with about six weeks notice, we switched, we switched hemispheres and oh, wow. uh, yeah. And then I went back to Australia and then back here and then I got deported from here and then went back to Australia. And then I, I got Whoa, married. You got deported. Corporate. Oh yeah. Okay. There's every, every Australian has a story like this, <laughs> but, but uh, yes, I, I married my wife in 2003 and I've got the green card. Uh, that's not the only reason why I married her, but um, uh, <laughs> it certainly helps. So, yeah. Interesting. So you, you went through and be, become an Anglican minister and, um, but, but you're not necessarily like, that's like, that's your ordination, but you're functioning this nonprofit with this nonprofit that is, have you started this nonprofit speak like speak life? I've kind of, I've, I've changed. It, it began as the Hour of Revival Evangelistic Association. And just by the title, you can probably guess the yeah, decade sure. that it was, it, it began in 1952. And oh, there was very gotcha. much a Billy Graham kind of um, evangelist at the heart of it who went out and did the crusades type thing, but he also uh, had a radio ministry. And so he founded this, um, he found, founded this non nonprofit as uh, something to help us in proclaiming Jesus in person and via media media back in the day meant radio right but uh, i joined the organization in 2010 and we've been moving much more uh, online and much more in terms of video but uh, we still do the same thing we still lift up the name of jesus in person and uh, and online awesome love it and that's part of what you're doing in a different way in this new book that you've published and i just want to encourage people to get it um the air we breathe now this when when people see the title they might even pick it up uh, and it, it says how we all came to believe subtitle, how we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. So if people see those, those words, they might not think they have a Christian book coming their way. So help us understand what, what it, what is it? Well, even what this, this image of the air we breathe, what do you have in mind there? Well, they've done a great job with the, with the cover. Cause oh, look uh, at this. 
if you get if you get a hard copy, you get the cheese grater edition in which <laughs> there are there are holes in the cover to give you the the, the sense of yeah. the values that we have blowing their way through the atmosphere. And I guess the illustration is is based on my experience in Australia. I grew up there, as I've said, and when you're living in a place, you don't really appreciate um, the atmosphere. Uh, and it's only now when I fly back into Sydney, I smell how sweet the air is because there are so many eucalyptus trees and the eucalyptus oil is kind of mentholating the air. It's like a, a kind of a cough syrup um, <laughs> I, um, constantly carried upon the breeze. Um, that's a good you, smell. It's a good smell. It's yeah. a good cough syrup. Okay, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eucalyptus, it, eucalyptus. Uca yeah, that, that eucalyptus menthol kind of but it's a sweet smell that you do not notice because it is the air that you breathe. And sometimes you need to go out of the atmosphere and come back into it to figure out what you've been taking for granted the whole time. And I guess the contention of the book is that we have moral intuitions and assumptions and gut instincts yes. that we take to be utterly natural and obvious and universal. And what the book tries to do is take you out of your current environment uh, maybe by going around the world, but in this in this book, really, we go back in history to pre-Christian times okay. and show people that the moral assumptions and intuitions and gut instincts that we all share are by no means natural. They are by no means obvious. They are by no means universal. Hmm. They have come to us specifically from the Jesus revolution. And so that's that's kind of the premise of the book. Now, now, a lot of these themes then are things that would be highlighted in Western culture, and you and I both come from Western culture. And I think this is last week. The Queen, um, as we said, in Salvation Army, is promoted to glory. She's you know no longer uh, she's absent from the body, present with the Lord. But right. there, there's a highlighting at this point of Western culture, and there's even there's a questioning of it. H how much of what we're talking about here are things that are supposing? Uh, and, and being a little bit of a critic, supposing Western values. Yeah, well, I'd say Western values are very contingent things. They are not these obvious moral intuitions that all humanity in all times and places have shared. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I, I go through seven different moral values that we all tend to hold in the West. I go through uh, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And I actually attach those to seven different stages in human history. Okay. With equality, I talk about the Old Testament. With uh, compassion, I talk about uh, Jesus in particular in the New Testament. With consent in the realm of sexual ethics, I talk about the early church. With enlightenment, I talk about the medieval period. With science, I talk about the scientific revolution. With freedom, I talk about the abolition of the slave trade. And with progress, I bring us up to date to the 21st century. And my point is really that all these values that we unthinkingly hold right, right. have come to us through very specific historical developments. Um, and that really matters, especially you, you have a, a kind of a, a, a rupture in the life of the Commonwealth as uh, Queen Elizabeth dies. Suddenly, what do you find? Well, you find millions of people showing up at cathedrals and... Mm singing hymns yes yes and bowing <laughs> to the earthly remains of her majesty who is the governor of the church of england um crossing themselves uh in periods of intense mourning and that mourning is ritualized and there is a pageantry that has christian symbolism absolutely woven into it and you notice that you also notice people objecting to that and people saying, well, what about democratic ideals, right? Or isn't this very nationalistic? Aren't we all globalists today? Or isn't this all about tradition? Aren't we all progressive today? Hmm. But even in that debate, who gave you the idea that we ought to be democratic? Right. Who gave you the idea that we ought to be globalist? Who gave you the idea that we ought to be progressive? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and, and my contention in the book is no matter on what side you land in all these different culture wars, it is Jesus who is shaping all of them. Wow. So it's, it's not just like they, they think they're people might think that they're moving against that that tradition. But what, what they're actually moving toward is still a value that comes from the Christian worldview. 
100 i just i just received a letter from humanists uk which is the largest humanist uh, organization in the united kingdom and it's an appeal letter looking for funds they're very worried by this sort of renaissance in um the christian establishment yeah. and people going to church and people going to cathedrals they're very worried and they're saying give us your money now we need to we need to fight the the incursion of sort of you know because of the queen's death because of the queen's death yeah wow interesting um and so they're very worried about it and which is which is interesting all by itself but you read through this this appeal letter and what are the concerns the concerns are for democratic representation that's mm. interesting the concerns are um the church is rich and is perceived to be powerful mm. and we want to speak against that the church is perceived to be corrupt and mm. we want to speak against that um there are you know traditions that are holding us back and we want to kind of progress towards a brighter future and literally every single sentence is infused with a thoroughly christian ideal yeah, <laughs> every single one even humanism itself uh, because where do we get the idea that humans have this particular value this sort of inviolable dignity that is given to each person equally no matter who they are their their race their religion their rank where do we get the idea of human rights and human equality right, right. anyway and so my my contention is even if you're a, a dyed in the wool royalist and you believe in sacral monarchy or you believe in absolute direct democracy um, you are on either side of a culture war that is really encompassed by the Christian vision of reality. We're all hurling Bible verses at each other. We've just forgotten the references. Wow, interesting idea. Now, I want to I want to drill down on some of these issues that you've brought up. These things that we experience in our culture that are connected, whether we realize it or not. Like like you say, it's the air that we breathe. But I think talking about the queen is interesting. I hope that I'll get this out in time where this is still like something that people are thinking about. Um, I'm I'm surprised even the way that I'm challenged by and not challenged, but uh, appreciative of the the liturgy that's coming through. Like the the way that like the uh, for instance, like a doctrine of the resurrection of the body is so clearly represented yeah. at multiple stages already. We haven't even haven't even had the funeral. Like in mm. uh, just this language is a part, and and I think unfortunately, if we would just take time to listen to what's being said, it could lead people to the place that they need to be. And how beautiful it is that, yes, you'll have the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, besides the earthly remains of Her Majesty the Queen, saying, you know, ensure and her certain hope of the resurrection of the dead and, and, right. and pronouncing these things. But that is said by every vicar in every little parish up and down the country about every person who dies mm. every, every, everyone right <laughs> um there, there is a real democratization actually about wow. the fact that this liturgy is it is for everyone and and the queen is no exception to it um so yeah i'm a i'm a fan of liturgy and i and i think there's a there's a renaissance and a rediscovery and a, a retrieval of of liturgy going on among a whole bunch of people um be they evangelical broadly or be they people who are uh, inquiring into the faith and i'm finding that those who are most interested in the faith uh at the moment more more broadly tend to gravitate towards more liturgical forms of service which mm, interesting. is interesting it, now i don't know if that's necessarily the case in the united states but i'm really thankful if that is bringing people to faith and to christian community in the uk I, there's something i think we still have to get over the um superstar christianity here that's just something about mm -hmm our culture brand but I'm look the, the deeper people can get into the that language and tradition i think can help pull them to essential doctrine i mean i think talking about in the in the sure hope of the resurrection of our bodies this is like something that ultimately gives people the final hope that they're looking for and you say this kind of interesting thing in the book you say the extraordinary impact of christianity is seen in the fact that we don't notice it and my hope is that what's happening I, I need to be more proper with Her Majesty the Queen. Is that <laughs> people will notice it? People will yeah. notice what's going on. What What do you hope people will notice in this period where Western values are not just being questioned or just being at least highlighted? What 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 do you think can pull people in? Maybe it's different things, but I'm curious. I think 
it's really important that we start noticing that the air that we breathe, we start noticing that we are all people of faith. Um, mm. My friends, a, lo a lot of my friends consider themselves to be totally post-Christian, totally secular, um, and they are not only not believers, they feel themselves to be incapable of faith. And in, in a sense, I've written my book for them because I want to show them that on a daily basis, they are living by faith, living mm. according to these intuitions and these values that they cannot prove, they cannot demonstrate them mathematically or logically. You can't do a scientific experiment and come up with a proof for human rights. And yet my friends live in costly ways according to these ideals like compassion and equality and consent and all these things. And I, I just think it's so important to give people a vocabulary for faith when they have thought of themselves as incapable of it. You know, I, I think of a friend who wrote to me and just, she, she said just one sentence of, of course you realize I could never be a person of faith. And, and it's a sentence that's haunted me because I know that she lives sacrificially for the sake of values that she cannot prove. Yeah. And mm. what do you call that when someone sort of wages their life on something that is not demonstrable, but in trust, they venture forth in order to be compassionate to somebody who might, you know, turn their back on them, treat right. somebody equally who has not yet demonstrated that they are worthy of equal dignity, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yet I, I just think it's so important because we lived for a while in the, the wake of the new atheism in which Richard Dawkins could kind of characterize, you know, people of faith as faith heads mm. <clears throat> and i think certainly a lot of my friends and a lot of my generation bought into that lie that we are not ordinarily people of faith and there are those that, that other breed of person over there these christians who managed to be able to take a leap of faith and the whole point of the book is saying you don't need to leap you're already six miles in the air <laughs> Wow. <laughs> You're living yeah. in this castle in the air with absolutely no foundations apart from Jesus. Yes. You really, so what's you really your strategy? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. What, yeah, what's your yeah. strategy with your friend? How do you respond to her? Um, to point out to where she already believes. And I okay. and I think um I think that's so important in all kinds of evangelism is um, there is a way of responding to the words that are coming out of a person's mouth. And I guess that's very important. There's also a way of addressing the heart that has given rise to those words. And that's really important. And it's also very important to point to the, the feet of your friend and where they are standing. Okay. Because what they are standing on and how they are, what the, the assumptions that they are making about humanity and how life works and, and highest ideals, those assumptions go unremarked upon. They, 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 they go unexamined for most people most of the time. And so my, my big point is, look, my, my friends, they think of, um, they think of the church as unequal instead of it being compassionate, it's cruel. Instead of it being right, consensual, right. it's coercive. Instead of being enlightened, it's unenlightened. Instead of being science, it's anti-science. Instead of being free, it's about restriction. Instead of progress, it's regressive. And I just want to point out to my friends, what are you assuming even as you accuse the church of being these things and we can wear, we can like wear those critiques because mm. sometimes they are We've right on target. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but the point is, again, is not so much to take the words that are coming out of their mouth, but to point to where they're standing and where they are standing is on the absolute rock solid assumption that equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress are foundational values that ought to be on it. Mm. Yes. So you're already a person of faith. Where does that come from? And then a lot of the book is showing really none of this makes sense without Jesus. Hmm. So let's get into one of these topics because you've mentioned them several times. And I, and I, I, I know if we want to look into all of them, get the book, right? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but let's look at equality, for instance. Like, and you said like a lot of people would assume that that's not what, what Christianity supposes. Like, uh, hmm. That's not what we're, but how is equality rooted in Christianity? One of the things you need to do is, again, take yourself out of the atmosphere that you're used to and place yourself in a non-Christian or a pre-Christian culture. And you can do that in the ancient world. And you can ask Plato or Aristotle, are people equal? Mm. And he would say, well, obviously not. You yeah. take any, any two people and you judge them according to any one metric and they're going to be yeah. different. 
this guy is smarter than that guy. This guy's stronger than that guy. This guy's wealthier than that guy. This guy's more economically productive than this guy. This guy is a master. That guy's a slave. This guy's a citizen. That guy's a barbarian. <laughs> this guy is a guy. This guy is a girl. And Plato would be saying on every single measure, there is difference and, and it leads to inequality. And then Plato would say, you know, if, if you were somehow beamed back into the fifth century BC and, you know, he would say, you seem to believe in equality. In what sense are those two people equal? Mm. Where is it? Mm. It's, it's, it seems a magical idea. Yeah. Um, and where has it come from? Well, page one of the Bible, you've got man and woman in the image of God sharing dominion over the world. Now, that idea of the image of God was in some ancient Near Eastern texts applied to the king. Maybe the king is this godlike person because the gods of the ancient Near East were tyrannical kind of um, despots. Yeah. And so, you know, a tyrannical despot is probably a good image of a king in, in so many ancient Near Eastern texts. But in the Bible, everyone, male and female, is kingly, is royal. Mm. And we, we share that equality, no matter our gender, our race, our wealth, our class, it doesn't matter. It's, it's entirely equal. And then you bring it through into the New Testament. And what does Jesus do? God, the son becomes God, our brother and descends to the, the bottom of the sort of the social hierarchy, as it were, to die the slave's death and then rises up again to invite us into his family. And in his family, there are no lords except him. Mm. We are all brothers and sisters. It's, it's a remarkably egalitarian vision for human worth and dignity. And it has very slowly, but surely bedded itself down in our imaginations such that now we think justice is about equalizing people. Mm. If you see an inequality, it's instinctive to us that that inequality must be unfair because equality must be achieved. And so justice in, uh, involves equalizing people. Whereas you talk to a Plato or an Aristotle and inequality, they would say, is woven into creation, mm -hmm. woven into the nature of things. And justice means enforcing that inequality, right? And what's what's happened? There's there's been the, the most extraordinary revolution in our in our moral compass, and it's it's all down to Jesus. It really is. Mm -hmm. So this gets connected to slavery. So a lot of people right. would say, "Oh, Christianity, you know, just enables slavery to happen for a long time." But I mean, how is the equality and the slavery question connected? Well, again, Plato or, or Aristotle would say nature teaches you. Some people right. are born to rule and some people are born to be ruled over. And if you leave aside your Christianity and you try to go toe to toe with Plato on that question, you'll probably lose. Mm -hmm. Not just because he's far cleverer than you are, far cleverer than I am, but it is, it is obvious to him that when you look at some people, they're very good at organizing their own lives. And there are some people who are terrible at organizing their own lives. And wouldn't it be good if the mm. people who are good at organizing others organized them and the people mm. who are not good at organizing themselves got looked after in that way? Mm. Mm -hmm. It sounds very rational. And there's, there's no logical flaw in that argument. There's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing logical about homo sapiens that, that means you cannot have a slave class. And every mm. single society that's gotten to any kind of, of, of level of development has been a slave society. Every mm single one we are the odd ones we are the odd ones how are we the odd ones well i, I talk about it in my chapter on freedom but remarkably um there are a bunch of people who um take the image of god very very seriously and preach and not only preach, but actually put into practice their belief in the equality of all people. And you get an abolition movement in the 18th and 19th centuries, which overturned one of the great human universals in human history, which is slavery. Right. And we have gone, here's another revolution. We have gone from 
slavery being the great human universal to the assumption that of course people can never be property of course mm, mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. well that of course is so obvious to us it is the air that we breathe but again it has come to us very specifically through the the jesus revolution yes and in Obviously, like we say this comes through the Jesus revolution, but there also is this idea too that it's connected, as you said, to the first page of the Bible. How do we kind of work through the way that like you say that it finds its, I don't know if you say climax in Jesus, but how does this relate like to the reality that Christianity comes from Judaism? Right. Well, Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Jewish Messiah, uh, embodies the the Hebrew expectations and hopes. He is the Lord of uh, the old testaments um he comes what happens in the new testaments um is is not really a, a change of regime or a change in god's um, desires or morality or any anything of the sort but what had been kept within old testament israel bursts the banks of mm. the jewish nation and ends up flooding the world which is why that i mean the new testament um it never it never really has to go into much doctrine in the new testament in, in terms of so as the new testament unfolds what does the death of jesus mean the new the new testament will just say well just read leviticus uh just think about the temple some more just you know um think about isaiah um it will take you back to the old testament in terms of in terms of those doctrines um but the big controversy in the new testament is always oh what do we do with gentiles wanting to come in on the jewish messiah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do they have to become jewish right and of course if the answer to that question was yes then i i think the jesus revolution would be contained and locked up continually within an ethnic national group um but the genius of the new testament is um right the the mystery that was kept hidden for ages and is now revealed uh, as Paul uh, talks about it in a number of different places, for instance, Ephesians chapter three um, and Colossians chapter one, he's, it is Colossians chapter two. He says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory and in you, you Colossians, you in Turkey, um, you're in on this. You are children of Abraham as well. So I guess what you see in the Old Testament is a whole bunch of people who w had these peculiar views. They, they believed yeah. in compassion and equality and consent and, and all these great values. Right. But it was locked up it, in the New Testament. It, it burst the banks of Old Testament Israel and it's flooded the world. Yeah. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Be blessed. You know, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a bigger vision. OK, now you bring up the other one. I thought it's so interesting that you highlight consent right. as something. Yeah. So talk, talk to me about that. Like, how is that coming from the Christian tradition? How is that a part of um, like people? People are generally going to assume that. Yeah, of course, this is something that we all I mean, I think the, the word that keeps coming up. Like time and time again is of course of course well <laughs> right how do we get to that of course and, yeah. and, and particularly how's that related to like kind of like the history of consent yeah oh gosh such a such a big um I know. Topic. But the, the sexual ethics of the greco-roman world um is just night and day from mm. what we would take for granted um uh, a high-born roman male had the right to possess any body he so chose, mm. be they in his family, be they a slave, be they a prostitute, prostitution um, was state sponsored. Um, brothels were everywhere. A trip to the brothel would set you back the cost of a loaf of bread. There are 25 Latin words for prostitutes. Um, and yet there is no natural way in Latin to refer to an adult male virgin. When you say what? virgin, oh so, when you say virgin in Latin, you're referring yeah, to sure. a woman. It's just assumed. Yeah, there's no, there's no natural grammatical way of referring to an adult male wow. virgin. Right? Oh my goodness! I mean, it's, it sounds like a, uh, it sounds like the way people talk about uh, we we are uh, Wesley Biblical Seminary is in Jackson, Mississippi, which mm. is the, where the case that went to the Supreme Court where Roe versus Wade was overturned. But right. so often in the discussions about abortion is this assumption that sounds like. Every people are just going to get pregnant. People are just going to have sex. We no matter outside of the the boundaries of of marriage between one man and one woman. I mean, it's just, it's just going to happen. Now we just have to deal with that. I mean, so it sounds like it's similar to that time period. I just uh, finished reading a book by Louise Perry called "The Case Against the Sexual Revolution," and uh, she's not a Christian. Interesting, um, but 
she opens her book with a, a little snatch of conversation that uh, a friend of hers had with an archaeologist. And the archaeologist came home from a, uh, a long day of digging. And he said, we found another brothel. And this friend of Louise Perry said, um, how do you know it's a brothel? He said, because of all the baby bones. Oh, my. Um, massive burial sites wow. uh, of babies is an indicator there was a brothel. Why? Wow. Well, because we all know where sex leads. And certainly before the pill, that, that is definitely where, where sex would lead. And yet the, the prostitutes would have the children and then the, um, their master would, you know, force them to um, commit infanticide, which again is another human universal. Right, um, right. Or, you know, it's very difficult to find human cultures that don't practice infanticide. <laughs> um, of course, we find that abhorrent. Yes. Um, it was invisible to them as a problem. Wow. I'm sorry to get you off. I, I've talked about, you were talking about yeah. consent and I was kind of blown away by yeah. this idea that there isn't a word this uh, for male virgins. Yeah, well, it, it is all linked. It is all linked in that the unquestioned rights of powerful men to do what they want with their libidos. Um, mm. Of course, it was um, uh, it was not mirrored back in the female experience. Um, right, right. Um, there was a word for, for, for virgin and it just meant woman. And mm. absolute chastity was expected um, of, of women. Virginity before marriage and then complete faithfulness within marriage. They probably wouldn't have to wait long until marriage. Uh, marriages at 12 were, were very common in the Roman world. Um, and so there was this incredible inequality. And then the sexual revolution happened. And when I say the sexual revolution, you're probably thinking the 1960s. Yeah. But 1900 years before the swinging 60s, the real sexual revolution that has been for the absolute blessing of this world was Jesus standing up Matthew chapter 19 and wow. saying, it's one man, one woman for life. And that's that. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, these red blooded men who are following Jesus say, if it's like this, it's probably better if we don't get married. <laughs> you know, so, some of Jesus followers were married. So <laughs> I don't know what their wives thought about their husbands <laughs> saying, it's probably better if we didn't get married. Jesus. Ah. And then, but then Jesus says, oh, you've, there's one other option. You can be a eunuch for the kingdom, mm -hmm. right? You, you can forswear all sexual relations for the sake of, of Christ and his kingdom. And, and, that's, and that's it. That, and fascinatingly, what that sexual revolution does is absolutely equalize the sexes. Mm. There's mm. no more double standard. Men cannot sow their wild oats and then expect women to be chased. Men and women are to be utterly chaste and devoted to Christ. And there's only one sexual outlet and that is marriage. Um, but that has been for the absolute blessing of the world. Another non-Christian, uh, Joseph Heinrich, uh, Joseph Henrik, sorry. He, he wrote a, a book called the weirdest people in the world. And he traced through why Westerners are so bizarre historically and, 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 and internationally. And he says it's because of Christianity and in particular because of the sex, uh, the sexual ethic of Christianity. He calls it the mm. marriage and family pro program. And he said, absolutely. He, he uses this, this phrase about the, the church reaching down and grabbing men by the testicles, right? Oh. Uh, which is which a particularly vulgar um, way of putting it, but, but he's basically saying constrain your sexuality. And it's, it's not a million miles away from Jesus saying, be, be a eunuch for the kingdom. Right. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and the Christian sexual ethic tamed rampant male sexuality because rampant male sexuality in the wild is such a destructive thing. It leads to all these brothels and it leads right. to all these cemeteries full of these tiny little children who the fathers have no connection to and then they move on. Marriage ties a man to his partner and to his children. Mm -hmm. Ties a man to his sexual choices in a way that biology doesn't. Biology ties a woman to her sexual choices. Biology doesn't tie a man to his sexual choices. We need culture to do that. We need marriage to do that. Mm -hmm. And the imposition of Jesus' sexual ethic was absolutely for the blessing and flourishing of the world. Um, Joseph Henrik you know, talks about how um, the, the West is particularly prosperous because of this. I mean, he's an evolutionary biologist, so everything comes down to sex and reproduction for him. Um, and I, I think it's a little bit reductionistic, his analysis of, of these things. But he cannot get away from the fact that the sexual revolution of the first century 
was transformative and it and it brings consent into the bedroom because it's it's got to be a man and a woman and in mm. 1 corinthians 7 paul says you know uh, a man's body doesn't belong to him belongs to right, his wife right. and his wife's body belongs to her and that mutuality um and you should only come together by consent and you should only forswear sex by consent, you know, to devote yourself to prayer and then come back again. And so he brings equality into the bedroom. He brings consent into the bedroom. He brings commitment into the bedroom in a way that has been utterly for the blessing of the world. And I think the undoing of that first century sexual revolution is not for our blessing. Hmm. And that's what's happening, of course, in society right now is that we had um, laws that uh, and institutions that were recognized, I say that really specifically, say like marriage is, as a pre-political institution is recognized by government for the good of society. And I think that that's what's often missed. It's like not uh, the reason that Christians and traditions like mine would want to like encourage people to not live outside of God's boundaries. It's not because we're trying to push the Bible on you. It's like we ultimately want the, the best thing for society as a whole. And, and that involves children and the way and how a society is formed around um, the union between a man and a woman. Um, and and, and I, my fear is like we're, we're moving away from all of these distinctions. Most Western societies are. And I feel like we're almost in a place where and this might seem a little, little neg a negative view that we have to let let society go and realize how good we had it with these rules. Like it's almost going to have to cave in on itself in order for us to see that th this basis for understanding how we function with understanding of with an understanding of consent, but also within the boundaries that. Jesus recognized as a foundation for what we're going to do. We have we're we're almost in a long game at this point. We well, that's that's what's been great about doing this book is recognizing what a very long game um, the Christian Revolution uh, truly has been. And you know, so many of our brothers and sisters down through history have lived under regimes that that define sex and marriage um, in ways that are utterly antithetical to the Bible. And um, many of them have absolutely thrived. Um, not necessarily having their beliefs reflected, you know, on the statute books, right. but I, I think we, we have to be the sort of, the sort of communities that are open to the refugees that are coming from the sexual re revolution. And there are so many refugees from the sexual revolution. There've been all sorts of disastrous, um, of the 1960s, I'm, I'm thinking about, yeah. um, there, there've been so many disastrous consequences for, for children and our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of gender and, um, I think we need to be we need to be ready for those refugees and wow um thinking about those refugees is helpful right i mean that's what's right. going i mean that's where we're going to be very quickly when you talk about 10 10 15 years from now when somebody who decided to um you know uh take their bodies and manipulate yeah. them in ways and and yeah. hurt them, yeah. i mean it, it, we, we need to be ready for the pastoral response to and I, think, and I think there's a lot of hope, you know, when I read Louise Perry's book, I've gotten to know her a little bit um, uh, personally as well. And, and she's on a really interesting journey in, in terms of how she's thinking about these, these things. She worked in a rape crisis center um, where she learned two things really. And, and for 10 years, she was, she was working in an environment in which she recognized that sex is very meaningful and you, you realize how meaningful it is when it goes wrong. And that gender is really, really, really important. Mm. Um, and then she read another book that was um, somewhat of an inspiration for my book, um, Dominion by Tom Holland, right? where he talks about the Me Too movement as something that is a profoundly Christian thing. Because what do you call a Harvey Weinstein in Rome? You'd call him a senator. Like, like Harvey <laughs> Weinstein is, is yeah. the, the, the problem of Harvey Weinstein is invisible to an ancient person. Um, it only makes sense within a, a broadly Christian kind of understanding of things. And she's, she is pulling at that thread and she's right. She's just written a book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, where chapters are things like marriage is good. Um, men and women are different. Sex is significant. Listen wow. to your mother. It's, it's, it's kind of, um, and lots of people are, are waking up to it. I, I, I think there is an opportunity if, if we don't kind of sell the farm. Right. And, and jump with both feet into this sexual revolution. If we if we plant our feet firmly on the actual 
the good sexual revolution that's for the flourishing of the world and and do not lose our nerve mm. um i think i think we'll see so many people sympathetic to our cause and Amen. actually she is representative of so many people who are finding the sexual ethic of jesus their way in we're wow. so used to thinking the sexual ethic of jesus is in the west that's yeah. The, yeah and that's the thing that we just need to can we just park that question i just want to talk about jesus and the resurrection and and maybe we'll get onto the sexual interesting ethic. lots of people are it's it's their way in they're, wow. they're seeing they're seeing that simply to believe in man and woman is being you, you're called a phobe for that you're called a bigot for that this is somehow transgenocide just talking about man, man and women loads of people are witnessing that and they're starting to see hmm we called the church bigoted we called the church homophobic. Um, but <laughs> J.K. Rowling's not bigoted. J.K. Rowling's right. not homophobic. Maybe the church isn't either. And I, I'm seeing it as a pathway for, for lots of people to start getting interested in Jesus again. It's amazing. The apologetic task might be one to go towards these distinctions that are self-evident. Yeah. right between male and female as a way to get in as opposed to all of the hard work we've done in defending the re uh, the resurrection even though i want to do that as well at the same time right, right, right. yeah yeah <laughs> that yeah. is such an interesting and, and, and i think it's so clear i think as we see people responding to the the transgender revolution um like for instance i think it it became so clear on uh on social media when there was a, a ncaa swimmer who's six right. foot, feet tall and is definitely like has a completely different build than the two the, the other the second and third place people that what were beat it and that uh, that he she beat in that moment so it's such an interesting thing like that's a way in now you you're said you said something just a minute ago we can't sell the farm mm. on this we can't we, we, we have to kind of hold to this original sexual revolution. What is a way that Christians could sell the farm? Hmm. Uh, what are some ways? Well, I, I think the world is noticing that it is impossible to have gender neutral people, that we are sexed. We are either male or female. Um, but I, I, I see that as somewhat of um an end point for those who had earlier thought of marriage is gender neutral mm -hmm, mm -hmm. marriage is not sexed it does not matter if you have man and woman or if you have two husbands or you have two wives and i i, I think there is absolutely a, a link between um the error of saying a human is gender neutral and the error of saying that a marriage is gender neutral. Mm -hmm. And I, I think one way, one way Christians have and can sell the farm is by giving up on what Matthew 19 makes clear from the beginning, God made right. them, the, the creator made them male and female. Um, so, but once you, once you stand on that, I think you can look historically and you can say, Look, male-female monogamy as the heartbeat of society has absolutely been for the blessing of the world, and it's brought the greatest equality. Giving it up, like with the case of Leah Thomas, that, that, that swimmer, um, brings back male domination. It really, wow. like, yeah. This is yeah. not for your liberation. This right. is not for the cause of equality. It's really not. It, in so many ways, it's, it suits men. I mean, the sexual revolution of the 1960s absolutely has, has suited men. And its current kind of iteration in kind of trans ideology utterly suits men and has mm. seen erasure of female spaces. And, and um, yeah, it, 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 is not, it has not been for our blessing and our, and our good. So, you know, why don't we just go back to the original? <laughs> sexual revolution let's go back to the original um matthew 19 is fascinating because jesus says you know there's male and female in the beginning the two shall become one and what god has joined together let no one separate and then he he does talk about like it's it's my gender identity if you like is very different there are some who are born eunuchs right right, right. so interesting right it's not okay um there, there are these marginal cases there are these difficult cases and Jesus is, is not kind of eradicating or erasing the identity of those who find either their gender or their sexuality diff difficult. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I think we all do. Mm -hmm. um, but there is something 
there is something good about submitting to what is already a given male and female is already a given we all find it difficult to live into that mm -hmm. um, marriage is this given we all find it difficult to live into that and if we don't do that singleness is a given and we find it difficult to live in that season as well however long that that season might be in a person's life it might be the, the, the whole of their lives but it's it, it's about just trusting that jesus knows what he's talking about yes and and the guy who has actually built your world he's founded civilizations he predicted all of this two thousand years ago and it's come true maybe we can just trust him on this you know that's what it boils down to i guess I love it. This is such a different type of argument. And Glenn, thank you so much for making it so clearly. And also it's just a great way into conversation. I hope that this will encourage people to do that. Now we've talked about consent, equality, um, sexuality, but you we're also, uh, you, you have a chapter on science and generally people think of science and Christianity or faith being at odds. How is this a part, how like even just our understanding of science, how much is that a a part of this air that we breathe. Yeah. Well, ever since the 19th century, at the, the end of the 19th century, a couple of very um, significant and influential polemical works were published about the warfare mm. between Christianity and science. And, um, and we kind of like that story. We like the story where, let's say, uh, a Galileo um, pursues academic and intellectual freedom and there's a big baddie called the Pope. Boo hiss, the Pope. And the Pope comes <laughs> along and he says, no science, I hate science. And Galileo, what a hero. He says, I don't care what you say. I will you know, stand for truth no matter what. And he is found vehemently suspect of heresy and he's imprisoned for the rest of his days, but he was right. Mm. And the truth will out and the scientific revolution has proved what a baddie that religious figure the pope was okay that's an interesting story we love that story we resonate with that story right because a century earlier there was this other guy and he stood up against a pope and he said i don't care what you say here i stand i can do no other god help me and his name was martin luther and he kind of he birthed this protestant reformation and he's often called like this guy who stands between the times he was the the last of the right the, the ancient the last of the medieval oh. people and the first modern man because on sense of conscience and the sense of what he knew to be true he didn't care what the pope said he didn't care what the emperor said he didn't care what tradition said he stood up again and those nasty religious people Mm. Um, they tried to kill him, but he stuck to his guns and the truth was, you know, the truth proved him victorious and, and we're all Protestants now. Um, so isn't it interesting that the Galileo story resonates with the people who have been shaped by the Martin Luther story? Well, okay. Well, why does the Martin Luther story kind of resonate with us? Well, there was this guy and he stood up against the religious powers and authorities, right? Yeah. And no matter what the forces arrayed against him were, no matter whether it was Pontius Pilate or whether it was Herod, whether it was the Pharisees, yeah. whether it was the Sadducees, he was the truth and they killed him. They actually did kill him. And yet the truth won. Mm. And the lights chased away the darkness and religious authorities were revealed for the corrupt institutions that they were and Jesus birthed a new kingdom. See, that's the original story that we love. Mm. And that's why the Martin Luther story resonates with us. It's also why the Galileo story resonates with us. And then by the time you get to Thomas Jefferson, um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, let me see if I can get the, the, the quote. Um, he, he said, um, priests, fear the advent of science as witches fear the rising of the sun um and it's, wow you find it there i'll take, give you an example of this from my own uh, research so i i'm a six generations into the salvation army uh my my family came to the united states through the ministry of the salvation army but often like this is the I, I call it the there's a William Booth had a more or less ecclesiology like he's pretty much the Salvation Army is pretty much more or less a church and even though he would say we're not a church we're not, we're, we're not seeking to be a church if either everything about what they did was functioning as a church is like a paradox of sorts but there's a way that the often the arguments were made that you, the Salvation Army 
or in any new movement, any like your movement, Speak Life. We're going to be more than other evangelistic agencies. Now, I'm not saying that you've said that, but Salvation Army, certainly in our founding days, said we're more than other churches or other. And so what was often would happen is that William Booth would be positioned as this same sort of, I mean, they would say it, the exact same lines, like the Apostle Paul, people talking about him, like the Apostle Paul, like uh, Martin Luther, like the, just go down the list of all the heroes. So William Booth stood up against the Sanhedrin of the, <laughs> yeah, 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 of yeah. the Methodist New Connection Conference, you know, like, and, and those, that was kind of like the way that we want, we want to position ourselves to be in that same sort of tradition. So, okay, yeah. did you find the quote? I did, I did. Okay. It reminds me of, um, yeah, another quote that I use in the book is that we are attuned to the Christ story. When we find a Christ figure, it hums like a, a, a tuning fork. Just, Amen. It, just, it just resonates. But uh, Thomas Jefferson said, priests dread the advance of science as witches do the approach of daylight. It's just, oh my. Brilliant, brilliant line. But, but again, it's this, this idea of the scientists are in this Christ position. Mm-hmm. And, you know, religion is arrayed against it, trying to shackle the sun, these these fools who are going to be overturned by the scientific revolution. Uh, but of course, as a, as a story, it resonates with us. But let's be good scientists. We've got okay. our hypothesis. Let's test it against the evidence. <laughs> like, like, let's look at the data <laughs> and let's let's see if our hypothesis might need revising. And when you go back to the scientific revolution, or I call it an evolution in the book, um, it, it is not the case that breaking away from the church led to science. It is precisely that natural philosophers at Christian institutions called universities, um, according to a specifically Christian form of philosophy and study of the natural world, overturned the, the Greek, the Hellenistic, the Aristotelian um, views of science and brought about a scientific revolution that did away with actually the the the, the, the older you know um, the older paradigms, and it did so as Christians at Christian institutions studying the natural world for Christian reasons, mm -hmm. and all of them, including Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler and Newton and all these all these guys, were profoundly Christian people who for whom the image of God was absolutely fundamental. To why they did science mm. because what you have with the image of god is the solution to a real mystery the mystery is why does science work why why does homo sapiens like clinging to this insignificant rock hurtling around the sun in the unfashionable western end of the spiral arm one spiral arm of the milky way galaxy why why does you know three pounds of gray matter between these two ears have any chance of plumbing the mysteries of the cosmos. Why? Um, and actually the image of God gives you the solution to that because what science depends on is that there are laws up above, there's a world out there and there's my mind in here and I can somehow look out at the world there and plug it into theories about the laws up above. And there's a triangulation between laws up above, minds in here and the world out there. Why should that triangulate? The image of God tells you why. On page one of the Bible, we're told that humanity are in this privileged position of being under heaven, but having dominion over the earth. And so we are to some degree able to grasp some of the mysteries of the cosmos. And it was people who believed in that who right. ended up doing science. And as C.S. Lewis famously said, you know, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. They expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. Mm. And it was precisely the Christian church that gave rise to the scientific revolution. So we need, we need a hypothesis about, about science and religion that can handle the actual data because the actual data is that science is one more gift of the Jesus revolution. Mm. Awesome. I, I, we don't have too much time, Kai. I, I've already taken a lot of your time, but I'm interested to the idea of progress. Like generally, this is of like people want to move away from Christianity to achieve progress. But I'm interested to think about like what does progress look like when Christianity is removed from the equation? Right. And I talk about a lot of um, very uh, – very despotic visions of of progress so chairman mao for instance um under his great leap forward 
in the 1940s and 50s oversaw the deaths of tens of millions, but perhaps 45 million died in Chairman Mao's great leap forward. Ha. So that should give us real pause for thought whenever anyone says progress is simply a good thing. Um, you can say the same about Stalin's five-year plans. You know, you, you, you could say the same about um, any number of human beliefs that um, come on board my train, I am heading towards progress. Well, how do you know? Um, so yeah, not all uh, ideas about progress are equal. But we have got the sense um, that Martin Luther King Jr. Um, gave to us. You know, he was he was quoting a, a, an abolitionist preacher from the 19th century when he said that uh, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That kind of resonates with us. Why does that resonate with us? Well, Martin Luther King and then the preacher that he um, uh, was citing would go back to the prophets, actually. Um, and you know, justice will roll on like a river and a never failing stream and, and the, the beating of swords into plowshares and there will come this time. And of course, Jesus talks about his movement will be like a mustard seed. That's the smallest of all seeds, but it will become the greatest plant. And even the birds of the air will, uh, will perch in its branches, or it's like yeast working its way through a batch of dough or a couple right. of chapters later in Matthew 16, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that's interesting because gates do not advance. The church advances. Huh. Yeah, and we, sure, yeah. we plunder Satan's kingdom. And that's what we yeah, have been yeah. doing for the last 20 centuries. So there is a sense of progress. And as it turns out, we now take for granted some of the um, values of the kingdom, including equality and compassion. Consent right, and, right. And those, interesting. those things. So this first century prophet, um, Got his prophecy, you know. He he, he nailed it. He it, he was in, indeed proved to be a a true prophet in in that sense. So there is there is a kind of progress, but who's in charge of that progress? Yeah. If you put human beings in charge of that progress, well, it's very it's very simple for me to say I'm on the right side of history. Mm. Well, how do you know? How do you know? Right. Um, and then history just becomes this kind of cudgel that you bludgeon other other people with. You need to be able to leave the future in God's hands and entrust yourself to Christ's kingdom in which he will be victorious and the gates of hell will not prevail. Um, and I, I do believe in that kind of progress, but you're absolutely right to be suspicious um, of, of people who simply believe in human progress because we, we have not simply been, been promised this abstract train towards progress town. Yeah, interesting. This is such an interesting book. And I, I, Glenn, thank you so much for taking time to write it. And I love how it comes out of your experience as an evangelist. Like this is ultimately like a way I think you're trying to get in to serve people, to help them come to Jesus. And like, and it's a different, it's a different angle and it's a different type of apologetic. And I find it to be creative and helpful. And I love how you've been able to use resources that come from people like Tom Holland, Rodney Stark. But I think this, this book has a real great opportunity in front of it. Like I, I really trust that God's going to use it. Now, before I, um, before we finish up, I, I always ask a question. Um, my podcast is called more to the story and it, it, there's a theological reason behind that. Like I want people to realize there's more than just having your sins forgiven. There's the process and experience of sanctification, but also I, I, I like to find out there's more to the story of Glenn Scrivener. So is there, was there something you don't often get to share? Like you're, you're often uh, sh sharing different things here. I mean, you told us a little about where you're from. I mean, do you like, is there a hobby you have that you don't talk a lot about? Um, I'll pick up a guitar any chance I get. I love playing, playing along. Uh, got a whole bunch of songs. One of these days, the world might hear them. But uh, okay, so yeah, you've so... written some songs. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So one, one of these days, there's, there's more to the story, Andy. But uh... okay, I'm looking for it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Anything else you want to say, or anything I should have asked you? No, that's that's all fantastic. At, uh, and if people want to join us at Speak Life, we do offer actually uh, internships uh, over here at Speak Life. People can come to us to, for one or two years. We can sort out American visas. We've had about four U.S. interns over the last three years, and uh, we, we okay, yeah, love to Tell see. Tell me, people. what would they do? What would interns do if they spent a year or two with you? You spend some time with me and uh, with uh, my other evangelist, Nate Morgan Locke, and we preach around the place. We 
produce a lot of media together. We've got a, a large kind of uh, video ministry. And then there's a lot of training. We do a, a kind of a, a Bible overview and we talk about the intersection of uh, creativity and uh, Christian evangelism. So people would be really welcome to check us out at uh, speaklife.org.uk. Awesome. That's great. Thanks so much for your time, Glenn. Appreciate your ministry, your writing ministry, and the work God's called you to do. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Andy. <laughs>